Sit back. What NFC East quarterback? Relax. In the movie Ocean's Eleven. Put on your think cap. What prized possession did Danny Ocean get ready for the show? In chemistry, what is the name of the principal? And here's your host. During what year was the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Kevin. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the 10th Think Cap Trivia Podcast. My name is Kevin, and it is my pleasure to be your host. If this is your first time listening, welcome on board, and I hope that you enjoy the show. Let me explain how this podcast is structured. At the beginning of the show, I will pose a couple of trivia questions. Usually it's about 10, and I'll give you a few moments to think of your answers. Then I will go through each question one by one and give you the answer and the history or the data or even just some fun facts behind the answer. So this isn't your standard trivia outfit that just gives you a question and an answer. I'm going to give you a brief breakdown that will hopefully satisfy all your curious minds out there while also entertaining you with my banter. And even if you've never competed at a trivia night before, my hope is that by listening to ThinkCap, you will simply get some extra nickel knowledge to have in your back pocket. If you do choose to compete in trivia, I hope that ThinkCap will become your go-to podcast to supplement your trivia knowledge. And... It's just one of those things you can learn a little bit on your commute or whenever you choose to consume your favorite podcasts. I consider myself a general trivia show, so the questions and topics vary each week, meaning you never know what you're going to get. If you're able to, following, subscribing, and rating the podcast on whatever streaming platform you are listening to will help me and the podcast continue to improve for you. And with that being said, let me once again welcome you to ThinkCap, and let's get this show started. Alright, so like I said, I've got a couple different questions for you, and what I'm going to do is read each question, give you a few moments to think about your answer, and then go through and break down each question one by one in detail. So sit back, relax, and let me read these questions for you. Question number one. What is it called when you get three strikes in a row in bowling? Once again, what is it called when you get three strikes in a row in bowling? Question number two. Who was the main protagonist of the Herman Melville novel Moby Dick? Once again, who was the main protagonist of the Herman Melville novel Moby Dick? Question number three, what is the name of the holiday celebrated on July 14th in France? Once again, what is the name of the holiday celebrated on July 14th in France? Question number four, what did the XP in Windows XP operating system stand for? Once again, what did the XP in the Windows XP operating system stand for? Question number five. What is the largest living species of lizard on Earth? Once again, what is the largest living species of lizard on Earth? Question number six. What is the proper name for the Adam's apple? 
Once again, what is the proper name for the Adam's apple? Question number seven, how many single digit numbers remain unretired for the New York Yankees? Once again, how many single digit numbers remain unretired for the New York Yankees? Question number eight, in Norse mythology, the series of apocalyptic events that will trigger the end of the world is known as what? Once again, in Norse mythology, the series of apocalyptic events that will trigger the end of the world is known as what? Question number nine. Bambi was the first Disney movie to not contain what? Once again, Bambi was the first Disney movie to not contain what? And question number 10. In physics, what do you call the first derivative of displacement? Once again, in physics, what do you call the first derivative of displacement? All right, so now that you have heard the 10 questions of trivia this week and you have had a couple moments to think of your answers, I'm going to go through and I will break down each one for you, read the question and the answer, and then give you a little bit of information about that answer. So let's get started with question number one. Question number one was, what is it called when you get three strikes in a row in bowling? And your correct answer is turkey. It is a turkey when you get three strikes in a row in bowling. Everybody loves a good turkey when they're out having a bowling night with their family and friends. And this term is thought to have originated because of tournament prizes that were given out in the early days of bowling. In the late 18th and early 19th century, it was common for prizes given out during these tournaments to be food items. Imagine it being similar to winning a bingo game and winning a basket with something like a large ham in it and other grocery items. That was kind of the general idea of the prizes that were given out. But when the tournaments would occur around Thanksgiving time, turkeys naturally ended up becoming common prizes. And although no one exactly knows when it happened for the first time, a tournament at some point decided to give away a turkey to people who managed to bowl three strikes in a row. So someone would bowl three strikes in a row and everyone would yell, all right, a turkey, you know? It kind of just developed that way and this practice spread and eventually it embedded itself in the common bowling vernacular long after giving away actual turkeys stopped being the case. It is worth noting too that at this time, bowling three strikes in a row was much harder to do than it is today. On top of player technique not being as refined, their lanes were not as consistent and pristine as they are today, the pins were set up by hand, meaning that sometimes they might not be exactly spaced like they are, um, they could be slightly further away, slightly closer. The bowling balls tended to not be as balanced weight-wise as those which we use today. And finally, the people running the tournaments, they wanted to draw people in with the allure of prizes. 
but they didn't want to give out the prizes, so oftentimes they would spoof the pins and try and make them harder to knock over by adding weight to the bottom of the pins. So bowling three strikes in a row was exceptionally hard to do, even for the most highly skilled bowlers at the time. It is a pretty fun term though to look at something like turkey that seems so arbitrary and ridiculous, but to find out that they actually did have some kind of logical history to how that term came to be. Question number two was, who was the main protagonist of the Herman Melville novel, Moby Dick? And your correct answer is Captain Ahab. Captain Ahab is the right answer. Ahab was the bitter, one-legged captain of the whaling vessel Pacquiode. It's spelled P-E-Q-U-O-D, and I think that's how it's pronounced, so forgive me if that's not it. But um, yeah, he was the captain of that ship in the 1851 novel. From the time that he had his leg bitten off by the white whale called Moby Dick on a previous whaling venture, Captain Ahab maniacally pursues the elusive whale in hopes of claiming revenge for his lost leg. Interestingly enough, the creation of his character was heavily influenced by the way that Shakespeare created his characters. According to Samuel Taylor Coleridge and his lecture on the subject of Hamlet, he says, quote, One of Shakespeare's modes for creating characters is to conceive any one intellectual or moral faculty in morbid excess and then to place himself, thus mutilated or diseased under given circumstances. And essentially what this means is that an otherwise noble character will have one major flaw that they are fixated on like nothing else and will drive them to their final goal no matter what gets in their way. And Ahab's fiery hatred for Moby Dick would obviously fall under this category as Melville clearly molded him in this way. Question number three was, what is the name of the holiday celebrated on July 14th in France? And your correct answer is Bastille Day. Bastille Day is the right answer. It is a holiday that celebrates the storming of the Bastille, which was a military fortress and prison on July 14th of 1789. They did so in a violent uprising that really helped usher in the, the French Revolution. The Bastille was built in the 1300s during the Hundred Years' War, um, and it de was designed to serve multiple purposes. It protected the eastern entrance to the city of Paris. It acted as an armory that kept weapons and gunpowder within its walls, and it was a prison for political prisoners, most of whom were held there without proper trial. Now, the formidable stone building's massive defenses included a 100-foot-high wall and a wide moat, plus more than 80 regular soldiers and 30 Swiss mercenaries who were standing guard at almost all times. Now, fast forward to the mid to late 1700s, and France was being ruled by Louis XVI, who, despite the country's huge debts, continued to spend, 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 such as by helping the American colonies to win their independence from the British. By the late 1780s, France's government stood on the brink of economic disaster. To make matters worse, widespread crop failures in 1788 brought about a nationwide famine. Bread prices rose so high that 
at their peak, the average worker spent about 88% of their wages on just that one piece of food. Unemployment, as you would guess, was also a very large problem at the time. Following a harsh winter, violent food riots broke out all across France, and bakeries and groceries and other food storage facilities would be looted on a regular basis. In an attempt to resolve the crisis, Louis summoned an assembly that was divided by social class in three orders. You had the clergy, which was the first estate, the nobility, which was the second, and the commoners, which was the third estate. Now, although it represented about 98% of the population, the third estate could still be outvoted by its two counterparts. As a result of this inequality, its representatives immediately started arguing for a greater voice because of how much of the population they represented. I mean, this is only natural, that makes sense, that seems fair. They eventually broke off and formed their own council, which they would call the National Assembly. And they convinced many nobles and clergymen to cross over and join their group. Now, Louis XVI did not like this arrangement, and he and his people were naturally less powerful in its structure, so that's the reason they didn't like it. But he did give it his consent, but he also positioned troops in Paris and its surroundings as to posture that he was ready to break up the assembly by force if necessary. On July 11th of 1789, the king got rid of Jack Necker, who was a popular uh, spokesperson for the people because he had real forward-minded thinking. Um, protests broke out and all throughout Paris the next day, they tormented those soldiers so much so that they withdrew from the city. The unrest continued on the morning of July 14th when an unruly mob seized roughly 32,000 muskets and some cannons with hopes of stealing large quantities of gunpowder stored in the Bastille. A group of men climbed over the outer wall and lowered a drawbridge to the Bastille courtyard, allowing the crowd to swarm inside. When the men began attempting to lower a second drawbridge, the French military officials opened fire. Nearly 100 citizens died and dozens others were wounded, while only one royalist lost his life in the initial battle. A detachment of French guards then showed up, but these guards were sympathetic with the protesters, and they showed up later in the afternoon and began blasting their cannons at the Bastille as well. This extra firepower caused the royalists inside to surrender. Their commander was then taken prisoner and murdered by the angry mob in the town square. They beheaded him and marched around the town with his head on a post. This was the turning point for the revolutionaries who would eventually succeed in their ultimate goal. And I know it seemed brutal, but beheadings were very, very common. And the use of the guillotine is almost synonymous with the French Revolution. So for whatever reason, that was their preferred method of... Uh, execution. Um, that's just what they did. And like I said, it's obviously an archaic practice, but it was very common in the area at the time. Today, much like the 4th of July is in America, though, Bastille Day is a public holiday in France that is celebrated by nationwide festivities, including fireworks, parades, and parties. Question number four was, what did the XP 
in the Windows XP operating system stand for? And your correct answer is experience. Experience. E-X-P-E-R-I-E-N-C-E. Experience is what the XP stood for. The Microsoft Windows XP operating system was introduced in 2001 and was the most significant upgrade to the Windows operating system since Windows 95. The previous version of Windows, which was called Windows ME or Millennium Edition, still had the same look and feel of Windows 95 and it had stability issues and it was incompatible with certain hardware so it really wasn't the best operating system it didn't really take off didn't find a lot of commercial success Windows XP though addressed many of those issues and it added a number of other improvements as well it was a much more stable operating system that was built on the Windows 2000 kernel which was known for its reliability XP also had a bit of a more polished modern look and its interface was pretty easy to navigate when compared to the older Windows systems. And although it wasn't really built from the ground up, it was already built on top of um, an existing kernel, an existing operating system, it really did represent a whole new experience for the user and that is why Microsoft felt that XP was a fitting name for the system. It really did well and it survived all the way until 2014. On April 8th of 2014, Microsoft officially ceased XP support. There were hundreds and hundreds of companies who used Windows XP operating system that were forced to upgrade at this time and they were naturally worried about the system updates that they would no longer receive to provide protection against viruses and malware but we all made it we're all still here and we are now up to Windows 10 which is the newest operating system and that's the one I use and it is my favorite personally I'm not much of a Mac person I'm way more of a Microsoft Windows guy. Question number five was, what is the largest living species of lizard on Earth? And your correct answer is the Komodo dragon. The Komodo dragon is a carnivorous reptile that can grow up to 10 feet in length, and I've seen that it can weigh up to 300 pounds. Now, growing up, the Komodo dragon and the capybara, which I talked about in a previous episode, were two of my favorite animals. I don't know why they were both... I guess the commonality between the two of them is that they are the largest of their um, particular animal group, with the Komodo dragon being the largest lizard and the capybara being the largest rodent. So, for whatever reason, I guess that attracted me as a child. But they are exclusively native to Indonesia's lesser Sunda Islands, including one named Komodo, where they lived and evolved for millions of years. They prefer the island's tropical forests, but they're found all across the island. Um, though these athletic reptiles can walk up to 7 miles per day, they prefer to stay close to home, and they really don't venture much further from where they actually hatched out of their eggs. They kind of like to stay in the same region throughout their entire life. Um, they're also ferocious predators who typically hunt large game such as the deer that inhabit their islands. They have venom glands that are loaded with toxins that lower their prey's blood pressure, prevent clotting, and induce shock. So, 
When they attack them with their serrated teeth, they will bite and pull back on the prey, which results in a major wound. Meanwhile, the venom will quicken the loss of blood and send the prey into shock. Now, even if the animal is able to escape the initial attack, a Komodo dragon is able to easily walk for miles and miles, like I said before, so they have no problem tracking down their prey with their keen sense of smell. The dragons, too, can eat upwards of 80% of their own body weight in a single feeding. They can just eat and eat and eat nonstop. And one more interesting fact about the Komodo dragon is that their females are capable of asexual reproduction. Yes, they don't need males to reproduce, but what's interesting about this method of reproduction is it can only result in male offspring. So that's a pretty fascinating tidbit of knowledge there. Um, Komodo dragons are classified by the IUCN as a protected species, so again, not yet endangered, but they are protected. And while they typically avoid interaction with humans, there have been a couple dozen documented instances of the animals attacking people, with five resulting in fatalities, the last of which occurred in 2009. So if you see one while visiting a zoo, you can appreciate the allure of these majestic reptiles, but you also need to respect them for the tenacious hunters that they definitely have the capability to be. And question number six was, what is the proper name for the Adam's apple? And your correct answer is technically the thyroid cartilage, which surrounds your larynx. But if you just said larynx, I'll give you credit for that one as well. The Adam's apple is essentially a lump of cartilage that helps to protect the walls and frontal part of the larynx, which is located directly behind it. As you probably know, the Adam's apple is typically larger and more pronounced in men, probably the reason it's not known as Eve's apple. And while the origin of the informal name Adam's apple is debated, there are two main leading theories. The Brewer's Dictionary of Phrase and Fable and the 1913 edition of Webster's Dictionary point at an ancient belief that a piece of the forbidden fruit was embedded in the throat of Adam in the Bible, who, according to some religions, was the first man to live on earth. And there are two misconceptions to clear up with this theory, though. The Bible does not specify the type of fruit that Adam ate. In Western Christian tradition, the fruit is commonly portrayed as an apple, thus creating confusion that some believe the fruit, the forbidden fruit, was actually an apple. I was actually at a trivia night one time where the question was, what type of fruit did Adam and Eve eat in the Bible? And the trivia host in me very much did not like that question because the fruit was not an apple. Like, there are a lot of photos of Adam and Eve, and it shows Adam with an apple in his hand, but the Bible has no mention of it being an apple, so I really didn't like that question. If you ever get asked that at a trivia night, you have my permission to raise a stink about it. But to get back to what I was saying, the Bible and other Judeo-Christian and Islamic writings don't make any mention of Adam choking on a forbidden fruit either. So the etymology theory is more of an old tale that than it is based on an actual biblical story. The second theory has to do with an interesting linguistic error that kind of just propagated over time. Linguist Alexander Goad claims that the Latin phrase to designate the Adam's apple was probably translated incorrectly early on. 
forgive my pronunciations, I'm going to try and do some Latin here for you. The phrase in Latin was pomum adami, literally meaning Adam's apple. This, in turn, came from the Hebrew topak ha-adam, meaning apple of man. The confusion lies in the fact that the Hebrew language, the proper name Adam, literally translates to the word man, and the word apple is similar to the word tafok, which means swollen, thus in combination the swelling of a man, meaning men have this swollen piece in their throat. Now, proponents of this version of the story contend that the subsequent phrases in Latin and other Romance languages represent a mistranslation from the start that ended up with what we know the thyroid cartilage to be informally known as the Adam's apple. And that brings us to question number seven, which was how many single-digit numbers remain unretired for the New York Yankees? And your correct answer is zero. There are no single-digit numbers that are not retired for the New York Yankees. Derek Jeter was the last one to wear a single-digit number when his number two was retired. The first jersey to be retired by the Yankees was Lou Gehrig's number four. According to the 2013 Yankees media guide, Gehrig's number was retired at an announcement to the public during an on-field announcement by Yankees co-owner Ed Barrow on July 4th of 1939. The number would then go on to be officially retired on January 6th of 1940. Since then, the Yanks have retired a total of 21 different numbers for 22 different people. The list of retired players from numbers 1 through 10 are as follows. Number 1, Billy Martin, Derek Jeter, Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Joe DiMaggio, Joe Torre, Mickey Mantle, Yogi Berra, Bill Dickley, Roger Maris, and Phil Rizzuto are all the retired numbers 1 through 10. Six Yankees would go on to wear their previously retired numbers in a managerial or coaching role, with only Bill Dickey going on to wear a different uniform as a coach when he wore number 33. Whitey Ford and Mariano Rivera are the only two Yankees to have their numbers retired while still wearing them in an active role on the team. Whitey was a coach in 1974 when the Yankees retired his number, and Rivera's number 42 was technically retired in 1997 when the MLB announced that Jackie Robinson's famous number 42 would be retired league-wide. However, the number was grandfathered to anyone who was already wearing it at the time. Rivera was one of the players already sporting number 42, so when Mariano's number 42 was officially retired by New York on September 22nd of 2013, Jackie Robinson's number that hung alongside the other retired numbers in Yankee Stadium was changed to be pinstripe style and matching font to duly honor the beloved pitcher and the iconic American baseball player. Rivera was and is the last player to ever wear number 42. No other players that were grandfathered into that honor were able to play as long as he did and extend their career the way he did. So Mariano Rivera will be the last to ever wear number 42. And that brings us to question number eight, which was in Norse mythology, the series of apocalyptic events that will trigger the end of the world is known as what? 
And your correct answer is Ragnarok. Ragnarok is the right answer. In Well, Norse mythology is considered as a chronological set of myths, tales, and legends. Naturally, the story of Ragnarok comes at the very end of this sequence. For the Vikings, the myth of Ragnarok was a prophecy of what was to come at some unspecified and unknown future time, but it really did have ramifications for how they understood the world and acted in their own time. According to the Vikings, Ragnarok was to be a cataclysmic destruction of the universe and everything in it, including the gods. In fact, the word Ragnarok translates to fate of the gods. According to the legend, Ragnarok would begin with an extremely harsh winter that lasted three entire years, causing mankind to struggle for food and end up abandoning their morals in a quest for survival. After this, the sun, moon, and stars would all leave the sky, leaving the world in darkness. The great tree that they believed held the world together with a name that I will not even attempt to pronounce would tremble causing all of Earth's trees and mountains to collapse at the same time. Then, a giant serpent would emerge from the depths of the ocean, causing enormous tremors as water from the seas poured onto the land. He would spit venom all over the land, spoiling any remaining hopes of fertile land or clean drinking water. Then, a ship with an evil army of giants, captained by none other than the infamous Loki, who was the betrayer of the gods, would descend onto the world and reap destruction wherever they went. And then the sky would split open and fire giants would emerge from it and march towards the Norse gods' chief city of Asgard. Even though the prophecies foretell the gods losing, they would go to battle to defend their home and the universe, but would ultimately fall to the aggressors. The barren world would then crumble and ultimately sink into the ocean, leaving nothing but what the Vikings referred to as the Void. Whew. Yeah, not fun stuff. But not all is completely lost, as some versions of the story foretell that Thor's children would survive the epic clash, and along with a couple other stray refugees that somehow would survive the apocalypse, would repopulate the new world that would rise again out of the water. It really is quite the tale, and my only further comment is that I really hope that the Vikings were incorrect about their prediction for the end of life on Earth. Question number nine was, Bambi was the first Disney movie to not contain what? And your correct answer is, it did not have any human characters. It was the first movie to not have any humans. Bambi was released in 1942 and was based on the 1923 book entitled Bambi, A Life in the Woods, which was written by an Australian man by the name of Felix Salton. At the time of its release, Bambi received criticism from both film critics and from hunters. There were many hunters who felt as if the film came off as an unpleasant and insulting to sportsmen. I can't exactly say that I blame them, considering that the animals tried to avoid the threat of human hunters for almost the entire movie because they killed Bambi's mother right at the beginning, but 
Film critics, on the other hand, complained that the film did not contain any of Disney's signature magic and fantasy elements. It was kind of just about the animals. There wasn't any of that extra Disney magical flair to it that everyone was accustomed to. Nowadays, though, we appreciate the beautiful animation and the endearing story, and Bambi is widely regarded as one of the greatest animated films of all time. In fact, in June of 2008, the American Film Institute released its top 10 films from every genre, and Bambi came in third among animated movies. Only Snow White and the Seven Dwarves and Pinocchio finished ahead of it. Bambi is actually due to be next in line for Disney's controversial live-action reboots. Some people don't like them. I, kind, I actually still haven't seen the Lion King one, believe it or not. I did watch The Jungle Book, and I thought that one was phenomenal. But... Bambi is set to be the next film to be released in live action sometime in 2021. Alright, and finally now, question number 10, which is our last question of this week's podcast. The question was, in physics, what do you call the first derivative of displacement? And your correct answer is velocity. Velocity is the right answer. So, the first thing here that you should know is the definition of velocity displacement, and derivative. Velocity is the rate at which an object moves relative to time at a specific momentary point in time. So it's it's a point in time you're measuring the velocity. So for example, an object can be traveling at 10 units per second. So it's traveling along the road, for example, and at that moment it's going 10 units per second. Displacement is how far from zero an object travels relative to time. So in that last example, this would mean that the object has a displacement of 10 units after a single second. And then third, without giving you an entire calculus lesson, a derivative is defined as a measure of the sensitivity to change of a mathematical function's output value with respect to a specific change in one of its input values. An interesting consequence of derivatives is that if you have any function that relates to the variable x and set it equal to y, then as long as x and y are real numbers, the derivative of your function will equal the slope of the line that is created when you plot your original function, your original x equals y. The slope of that line is equal to the change in y's value divided by the change in x's value, or as some people like to say, the rise over the run. But anyway, I'm going to bore you with all this math right here at the end of this episode. Let's imagine a graph for an object's position that follows the equation position equals time squared. So, after one second, the object has traveled one unit. After two seconds, it has traveled four units. After three seconds, it has traveled nine units, and so on. It exponentially is raising. So, clearly, if the object is changing position at that rate, that means it is accelerating and has a different velocity at each of those time intervals. Again, without boring you on the calculus, as I stated in the question, the derivative of displacement is velocity. The mathematical derivative of y equals x squared, or position equals time squared, equals y equals 2x, meaning that you can determine the object's position by multiplying the amount of time by 2. So, again, we can find the object's velocity at 1 second, 2 second, 3 seconds by using just the equation velocity equals 2 times time. At 1 second, the object is moving at a velocity of 2 units per second. At 2 seconds, it is moving at 4 units per second. At 3 seconds, it is moving at 6 units per second, and so on. 
and I could keep going and tell you that the derivative of velocity is acceleration, but I think I'm going to stop boring you with all that mumbo jumbo and let's finish up this podcast. That'll bring us to the end of the show. If you have made it this far and survived my calculus talk there, I really thank you for hanging out with me, and I hope that you're able to learn a little bit. If you enjoyed the show, I would greatly appreciate you sharing it with a friend or someone else who really just enjoys trivia. I am releasing podcasts every week. They'll come out every Monday, so in order to stay up to date with what I'm putting out, you can follow ThinkCap at T-H-I-N-K-K-A-P on Instagram or follow on Facebook with the same name. In both profiles, there are links to each streaming platform where the show is available, in addition to fun content and brain teasers that I post every couple of days to keep you thinking. If you enjoyed the show, please review, like, subscribe, or follow if you're able to. The feedback from you guys is huge and really helps me to take this podcast to the next level. In addition, last thing, I would love to hear what you guys want to learn. So if you have any fun trivia facts or you want questions pertaining to a specific topic, please leave that in your feedback or comment on any of ThinkCap's social media posts. I will read those posts and try and integrate what you guys want into my weekly shows. So once again, I thank you for listening. I will catch you next week and take care.